time of heightened political tension. Republicans, that fact of their policy crossing the line does a lot less to restrain their dislike for the other party. These are the sounds that make up our everyday soundscapes. In the news cycle, they're consistently readily available to us and in our personal lives. And of course, at the intersection of these two spheres, which is a border that is becoming increasingly blurred. So we have a constant stream of information in our own pockets. My name is Claire, and I'm a 23-year-old student from Vancouver. I moved to Vancouver five years ago to study dialogue and communication. And in this time, I've tried to make sense of a political spectrum, social life, education, and even city that struggles with intense polarization. For the first time, as a student, I'm not even able to bump into other students in lecture halls or hallways to unpack thoughts on these issues, and I felt this is only farthering polarization of our viewpoints. At home, we are all able to mute, delete, walk away from those who disagree with us. It's become so easy to call out or even cancel those who have viewpoints that we consider to be opponents, rather than calling them in to a dialogue space or conversation. This has really made me wonder what effects this has on youth who are studying and living at this time in Vancouver. I decided to explore this concept by calling up friends, strangers, classmates, and colleagues who all share an interest in working personally or professionally with dialogue. Today, I'm exploring the concept of social media, cancel culture, and gatekeeping as factors that are perpetuating polarization in which our generation is facing head-on as active members of multiple online communities. First, I talked to Joe, who is a political science student at SFU and a member of SFU's French cohort. Joe is an advocate for social issues and uses his online presence to share information, educate, and connect. I asked Joe to tell me a bit about how he approaches thinking about polarization. Here's what he had to say. I think polarization happens a lot now, obviously because of like the algorithm and our little echo chambers that we build for each other, for ourselves online, especially like in this pandemic, when we aren't going outside and hearing from other people or our colleagues or our, our, our coworkers or whatever. Uh, so we're like trapped in our little echo chambers, plus, especially uh, when you're like very online, there's this whole like ideological purity. What does the word ideological purity mean and how is it affecting our political landscape if you're not 100 percent on board with a leftist agenda then you're like not doing enough and i think that really takes away from our ability to like compromise um and to engage in dialogue because if you're coming to a place with no desire to compromise then obviously you're not gonna find anything but I think there's another side to that, which is that in our spaces for compromise, we end up with um, a right wing that has really dominated for a really long time and has moved our whole window of what's possible to the right, and a left wing that is very weak in North America. And so we see them like trying to compromise, but instead of compromising, like I have an example, it's like, with Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. And like, that was a pretty centrist position, right? And the right wing, the Republicans would rather us not have, or would rather Americans not have uh, that. So that there's actually a compromise that lands somewhere in the middle, 
rather than just a compromise that went somewhere on the right, which is where we're all accustomed to being now because of how our how we've been polarized, especially with the right wing in the United States and more generally North America. Who have benefited most from Barack Obama's signature health policy, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare? Real change begins with immediately repealing and replacing Obamacare. So it really seems like there's been this whole paradigm shift towards the right, um, and that's partially caused by a, such a strong purity test that's held by folks on the left. Um, how would you describe meeting the standards of a purity test, and what does that mean, and how does that lessen the amount of people that are able to engage with that political ideology? I think that there is definitely this this purity that we have envisioned other people to have, and when they don't meet those standards of purity, we're very quick to dismiss and to say that they're actually not on our team and they're actually not fighting for the same things we are because they don't hit this purity test that we have like laid out and they're not going all the way for it you know that that attitude in itself is very counterintuitive to any kind of compromise or dialogue and it's not very pragmatic we can't really get much done if that's how we act I think it's interesting that you said that because even just regarding the conversation we were having before we started recording about being vegan, it's kind of a similar idea. It's like not wanting to to conform to being completely like purely vegan, but doing it in a pragmatic way. I am afraid of telling people I'm vegan sometimes because like while I think of myself, maybe not now, now I'm more vegetarian, but before when I was vegan, I definitely made exceptions. I made exceptions to try new foods, or if somebody was cooking for me, I was going to eat their food. I'm not going to be like, mm, no. Um, and so my main reason for going vegan was because I wanted to reduce my carbon impact. I didn't, like, obviously it's, the onus isn't on me to eliminate my carbon impact and save the world. It's just to reduce it and to do what I can. And I was doing pretty well. I ate mostly vegan, had very little of anything that wasn't vegan. So I was doing pretty well, but I still felt very like ashamed sometimes to call myself vegan. So now I'm now I'm just vegetarian because I, I miss cheese. I really want to eat cheese. Uh, so I, I'm no longer that pure vegan. Um, but I think that's definitely like, <clears throat> we can't get everybody to go vegan. Not everybody's going to want that. And so that's not really a solution to climate change. But getting people to eat less meat and eat less meat products, that is going to actually help. And if we can do that in a way that doesn't make people feel bad about eating meat from time to time, that's probably a better way to go. It's more pragmatic and it'll actually accomplish the thing that we wanted to, to accomplish. I think that that can be applied in so many different scenarios politically as well. And I wonder what your thoughts are on on kind of that same example about purism in terms of activist culture and kind of like a sense of gatekeeping, even in types of terminology around the general culture of wokeness right now. Yeah. Um, 
I think gatekeeping is bad. We have all of this information at our fingertips that people can access and immerse themselves in and in very accessible formats. So I don't think there needs to be anybody gatekeeping any activist, like, um, or any kind of activist space. I think people are very capable of finding the information themselves to put themselves there. And if they're not at the same level as you in terms of uh, their education on like theory, it you probably don't need to discourage them from like trying. You should let them grow into it themselves instead of telling them what not to do. I definitely think that dialogue can be useful. I don't know if it's always going to be useful. I think you definitely need to have a lot of buy-in from the participants before it can possibly be useful. Hmm. Um, what I mean by that is you have to go into a dialogue without without the desire to win, because that's not the point. The desire, you, you shouldn't want to win a dialogue as if you're winning an argument. Um, you need to go in with an open mind and wanting to understand where the other person's coming from. And I think if you bring it down to the essentials, we're all looking for the basics, right? We want shelter and love and food and water. And I think that if you acknowledge that the other is doing that just the way you are, or just the same as you, um, then I think that's a really good place to start. If you can acknowledge the other person, the other's humanity, the way that you see it in them and really get back to the way you see your own humanity. And I think that's a really good starting point. Do you have any examples of maybe a time where you had to remind yourself of someone like your shared humanity with someone else who who really came at a, a issue or a conversation from a very different perspective or reality from you? just the other day with that girl in my class. So we had a project, a group project. Everybody hates group projects. I hate group projects. And it's literally my last semester and my grades at this point don't matter. So I did not want to do it. And I have a very last minute approach to doing things. So I was just going to leave it to the last minute and do it then, which I did do. But the other group member, she was very stressed. And I don't think it was just our group project. Um, <laughs> but I was completely oblivious to her stress. She even told us she was stressed, and I was just not paying attention. I was very much like, I don't really want to be doing this. Why are we having so many meetings? This is a group project that we can all do individually and then come together at the last minute. Um, and so I was actually, I did fully leave most of my, my part of the project until the morning of, and I woke up extraordinary, extraordinarily early to do it, and I got it done. But in the evening, I was feeling so upset and anxious with myself, because after literally five seconds of self-reflection, I realized that I was actually the asshole in that situation. Uh, not paying attention to my group members, uh, how she was feeling about her stress. And obviously she just wanted to get a good grade. I cared less about the grades, but you know, I wanted to succeed. I don't want to fail. 
and we were just having different ways of going about it and she just didn't know my way and I wasn't really feeling hers so when I was feeling anxious that night after my like five, five seconds of self-reflection I ended up reaching out to apologize because I was not going to fall asleep if I did not. We both just want to succeed and we had different ways of going about it and I just wasn't seeing her. So I made sure she felt seen and then we carried on with it and it was all good. I think that that story also has an important element that should be kind of touched on when talking about dialogue, which is about self-reflection. Because I, I feel like you can't really go into a dialogue space if you if you don't really know yourself. I think that's very true. I think, I think that also comes back down to seeing the humanity in the other because we get so caught up in our own lives that we forget what makes us human, you know? It's not about all of our things that we have going on. It's literally just about surviving. And if we can bring it back to that level, then we can bring it back to the level we need to be at to engage in a dialogue. But you actually have to bring it back. This conversation with Joe informed me so much about the dangers of ideological purities when having dialogue. It also reminded me of the importance of bringing your own humanity and a shared humanity when having dialogue. Joe's story he told about really making sure the other is seen in conversations is so important. What I began to consider next was trying to create anti-racist spaces and dialogues, which is a vital step in decolonization and creating an equitable future for the next generation.